Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. I uh, thought about several different ways to introduce the rapture and um, thought all of them would probably be pretty cheesy. One of them was uh, to put a helmet on and I thought, no, I, I don't need to do that. But, you know, the rapture of the church, we're going to talk through that this morning and uh, I'm about to throw out a lot of information to you. So, uh, put your thinking caps on, and uh, you know, if I talk too fast, uh, get the tape, <laughs> get, get the CD, get the podcast, right? Um, because there's a lot of info in this one, and, and I know that, I understand that, and hopefully it speaks to some of the um, maybe concerns, thoughts, questions you may have, and uh, walk through this. I absolutely believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Um, but I, I understand the prophecy is unfolding. Prophecy is unfolding, and we're all going to have our doctrine corrected. And I think the bottom line is, is today, as well as tomorrow, as well as uh, till the time that Christ does return, are we walking with the Lord? Are we yielded to him? Are we fully surrendered to him? Are we uh, being useful to him? Are we vessels through which his life is being revealed? And I think that's essential. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to look at uh, several passages, and, and I'm going to give you five and seven, five and seven, okay? Five uh, key points about the rapture, and seven key points of why I believe the rapture is going to take place prior to, before the tribulation. And it's the number seven because it's a perfect number, which means it's absolutely correct, and it's divine, and it's, you know, you know, you got to, <laughs> as I say, if, uh, if you want to be wrong, you have that free uh, choice to be able to do so, and we will continue to fellowship and, and be brothers and sisters in Christ. But at the same time, uh, I'm going to give you seven, okay? And so we'll walk through this, but look at First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Uh, Paul starts out and he's speaking to the Thessalonian believers. He wants to encourage them. They thought they were in the tribulation. They thought they were in the day of the Lord already. And he wanted to encourage them, no, you haven't missed out. No, you're not in the tribulation. And he says, I, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, meaning believers who have already gone on to be with the Lord, who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will first rise, and then we who are alive and remain, and here's the rapture moment, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, if you flip back just a few pages, states this, to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Or quickly go up to 1 Thessalonians 5.9, and he says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, indicating the salvation of the church from the immediate context of the day 
of the Lord. Not eternal salvation, not eternal life, but believers who already have eternal life being rescued from the immediate danger of, in this context, the wrath of God, which is the day of the Lord, Daniel's 70th week, or the tribulation, or the great tribulation, or Jacob's distress. And we could go through that list uh, because there's quite a different name, few names for this. I like how Warren Wearsby puts it on this one, and I like the tone that he takes. He says, will Christians go through the day of the Lord, meaning the tribulation or the great tribulation, the seven-year period of time? He says, that awful period of judgment that God will send on the earth. And he says this, I think not. And verses like 1 Thessalonians 1.10 or Chapter 5, verse 9, seem to support this. I like that tone. I like the way of putting that. You know, we often joke around, if you want to go on the second bus, that's perfectly fine. I'm going on the first. The truth of the matter is, folks, is prophecy is a very complicated and difficult issue. The study of eschatology or end times is very intricate. <laughs> and if you don't know that, just start getting into Zephaniah, get into Isaiah, get into Daniel, get into Revelation even further, and you will find that there is a lot that we really aren't sure about. Prophecy is unfolding. It is future. We do believe in the inerrant, infallible, plenary word of God, which means that there is a correct translation because it is God's word, and God, when he speaks, does not stutter. But we sometimes are trying to catch up a little bit with what it is that God has to say. There are certain things that are unequivocal. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, period. We know that. But when it comes to things like this, the timing of the rapture, etc., who is the Antichrist, etc., well, those are things that we hold with open hands and go, you know what, as much as possible, we have handled the Word of God as accurately as possible and allowed the Word of God to speak as clearly as possible as we know how to have the Word of God speak. And in the midst of that, we recognize there are some things that we will not divide over. We are not going to break fellowship over, but we will trust the Lord to make it clear when He chooses to do so. I do believe that the rapture, as I said, takes place prior to the seven-year period of time because I believe that these verses are speaking to wrath as that time, that seven-year period of time of judgment upon the earth. And I'm going to give you seven reasons why I believe it's pre-trib. I'm going to give you five things about the rapture, seven things of why I believe it's prior to the tribulation. Five key points about the rapture. Well, what's interesting is the word rapture doesn't even occur in our translation. <laughs> well, that'll confuse you, won't, you, won't it? That'll bless you. Where is it? Well, we just read it. We'll be caught up together. The word rapture is actually a Latin word. And not to get too wonky on you, but when they did the Latin Vulgate, they translated the Greek into Latin. They translated this idea uh, into the Latin, and the Latin word is rapture, and so everybody starts calling it the rapture. And it's not even found in the New Testament in that sense. It literally has the idea of being caught up. It's the Greek word harpazo. It means to snatch up suddenly. 
You can get a picture of this because it's used throughout the New Testament in various passages. One of them is in Acts chapter 8, verse 39. He says, when they came up out of the water, he's talking about Philip baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch. The, the Spirit of God had led Philip to go down, leave a revival, and go down. He meets the, the Ethiopian eunuch, and the Ethiopian eunuch doesn't understand the passage in Isaiah, and he asks Philip to explain it to him. He does. He gets saved. He baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch, and then it says this, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. That word snatched is the same idea that is presented in Thessalonians. It is a catching up. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 and following, I'm not going to read all the verses, but Paul is talking about his experience of being caught up into heaven. And the word caught up or the phrase is used twice. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, and then he goes on in verse 4 and again says, was caught up into paradise. The idea is very clear. Snatched, taken up, unexpectedly, quickly, rapidly, to the point where it's almost instantaneous. It's an amazing picture. I've heard of people expressing it from the idea of a flock of sheep and a wolf coming in and grabbing a sheep and taking away, and the rest of the sheep didn't even understand what was happening. And that is a picture of the church within the world. That the Lord Jesus Christ is going to snatch up the church in a moment's eye, in the twinkling of an eye, in a, in a moment so quick that it's indivisible, that it happens so fast that the rest of the world is left bewildered about what happened to the people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing moment that that is. Secondly, the rapture is a signless event. We're told to be alert. We're told to be ready for the return of the Lord. We're not told exactly when this is going to take place. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 13, the Lord says this, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. And he's speaking of the return of himself. You don't know when this is going to take place. In other passages, the Lord indicates that only the Father understands this moment. He will send the Son, and at that moment, there will be the snatching up, the catching up of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I like how this commentary puts it. Believers in the church age know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Therefore, they are encouraged to be watchful, anticipating the future consequences that a lack of vigilance could bring. Wow. Folks, we've talked through a little bit of the tribulation period. We're about to get into chapter 6 of Revelation where the seal begins, seals begin to be opened. It is an indescribable judgment of God upon this earth. And I believe that the promise of God to us as believers is that we are not destined for that time period. Thank the Lord. But how are we looking at others? How are we helping share with others? the hope of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news that they can be saved, that they don't have to go through this period of judgment. Thirdly, and this one's a difficult one, the restrainer is removed. Look over at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I just want to read this 
for you, verses 1 and following. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and following. Paul says this, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Again, these people were, they, they thought that they were in the midst of it. They thought they were already in the day of the Lord, in the tribulation, and Paul's saying, no, this isn't the case. And in verse 3, he says, why? He says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless, and he gives two things, the apostasy comes first, and secondly, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. It's interesting to note that Paul tells them, I've already told you who this restraint is, but he doesn't necessarily go into the detail for us. I'm not sure why. I don't know why the Holy Spirit led him in that way, but basically what he was doing is assuaging their fear that somehow they were in the midst of the day of the Lord, and he basically gives them two things, two reasons why they were not already in the tribulation, the day of the Lord, the 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year period of time. First, that the apostasy comes first. And that word apostasy is an interesting one. It literally means to stand away from. We tend to think of it, and rightfully so, because it's used in this uh, context or framework, as a falling away from the faith, a standing away from the truth of the gospel and the doctrines of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it can also be used, and some people believe that this is what it's indicating, it, it can mean to stand away from giving the indication that this is speaking of the rapture. Last year when we had the eschatology conference seminar, Dr. Andy Wood was here, and he expressed that view. Amen. <laughs> Not sure that that's what it means. Not going to be dogmatic about it. But I believe it also and clearly it can, but I believe it does mean a falling away from the true belief in Jesus Christ, leading to ultimately what takes place in the tribulation period, which is the worship of the Antichrist, leading to the abomination of desolation, which takes place in the middle of the tribulation, where the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple as if he's God. I believe that this is what it's referring to. I believe it coincides with the last church and the warning to the last church, the church age that we're in right now, where there's this idea that there's this coldness, so to speak. There's this lack of faith. There's this lack of walking with the Lord. And I think it coincides with that very clearly in my mind, but again, we won't break fellowship over this, okay? Secondly, he says the man of lawlessness is revealed, the Antichrist. How is he revealed? There's the signing of the covenant which ushers in the tribulation. One of the signs, one of the birth pains prior to the tribulation, the last one, is this signing of the covenant 
by the Antichrist with Israel, where there's a false peace, there's a one world government, etc., and immediately there's the recognition of who this individual is. I believe we will be out of here at that point, but I don't believe that the rapture is what precedes and or begins the 70th week of Daniel. I believe the signing of the covenant does, and that's very clear from Daniel in chapter 9. So the question is, who's the restrainer? Who's the restrainer? What is the restrainer? Some people believe that the restrainer may be speaking of angels. I disagree with that. Some people believe that the restrainer may be government. Government. Different governments. And I don't know that I can agree with that because some governments promote evil. Not only that, but not all government is going to be done away with because during this time there's going to be a one world government. I believe this is speaking about the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. When the rapture takes place, the Holy Spirit, in that sense, is taken from the midst of the world events. Now, the question is, how can anybody get saved if the Holy Spirit's not at work? And I would suggest to you that that salvation is something that the Holy Spirit is constantly addressing, working on. God is at work all around us. He's at work in unbelievers' lives, and he's constantly drawing unbelievers to himself. And it is the Holy Spirit that convicts. It is the Holy Spirit that takes the word of God and begins to impress it upon the hearts of people, regardless of whether they're unbelievers or believers. But in this context, what we're talking about is the Holy Spirit, the restrainer, being removed because the church is being raptured The question is, are people still able to get saved? And the answer is clearly yes. If you look at the first part of the tribulation, there is a multitude who is saved. We know that the 144,000 are proclaiming the gospel. We know the angels are flying in the midheaven proclaiming the gospel. We know the two witnesses are proclaiming the gospel. And we know that people from every nation that remains on earth are being saved, and there's a multitude of them, and they are martyred for their faith. So the question is, if the Holy Spirit is taking out the restrainer, does he still have a part to play? Well, folks, I would suggest that people were getting saved prior to the church. Abraham believed, and it was what? Credited to him as righteousness. You think that was a work of Abraham? I think that was a work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit worked prior to the church. The Holy Spirit is uniquely working in and through the church. There will come a point where the church will be raptured and removed, and the Holy Spirit will continue to work through the events of earth and the program that God has put into place in order to put sin and rebellion down as well as call Israel to himself, including to present the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the entire earth so that those who respond by believing in him, will be saved. And again, I I speak on Wearsby on this because I think he really nails this down. Some people want to say, well, the Holy Spirit's out of here, and therefore it's a done deal. He's no longer at work. And I find that remarkable to even suggest that. But Wearsby says this, when the church is raptured, the Holy Spirit will not be taken out of the world. Otherwise, nobody could be saved during the tribulation. But he will be taken out of the midst of, to allow Satan and his forces to go to work. 
The Holy Spirit will certainly be present on the earth during the day of the Lord, but he will not be restraining the forces of evil as he is today. I think that's exactly right on. I wonder if we realize how the Holy Spirit works in and through our lives as believers in order to restrain evil within our culture. And the question is, are we yielding to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Holy Spirit, to the Father, so that through our lives, evil is being restrained? Or are we just participating in the things that we've actually been saved out of? Are we just going along like it's normal? Are we continuing to dabble in our culture in a way where the people of this world who are unbelievers, who have no hope, who do not believe in God, look at us and say, there's no difference between them and us? Or are we walking in a way where people begin to recognize there is a difference, we do have hope, and they begin to come to us and ask us, what is this hope that you've got? because I wanna know more about it. You're at peace, you're with joy, you have hope as Stephen preached about last week. You have something about you, there's a mark upon you that even in the midst of difficult circumstances and the things that you're going through, I'm watching you and I'm seeing something that I can't explain. That's the Holy Spirit of God working in and through us in a way that he begins to bring glory to the Father, the true identity of who God really is, God's love in and through us, as Tim was talking about with regard to the kids and how we love one another. Why? Because God is love and God lives within us, and as we yield to him through us, his love begins to be made manifest to people all around us. So I believe Paul's speaking about the restrainer from the perspective that the restrainer will be removed, but that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit will not continue to be at work. Fourth, the tribulation has birth pains indicating a timeline. There are certain things, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but indicating the timing. And again, it's kind of like when you see Christmas sales beginning and you know when Christmas is taking place, then we as the body of believers ought to look up because we know Thanksgiving's coming. Does that follow? <laughs> I think that's hilarious. How many like Cracker Barrel? I love Cracker Barrel, man. It's, it's a great place, great place to eat. Go eat there, good place. They got all kinds of Christian stuff and it's really good. Boy, they sell Christmas stuff early, don't they? I mean, it's hilarious. Well, when you see that coming and you know that that's happening, then we know Thanksgiving's right around the corner. And the fact of the matter is, when we begin to see these events, and, and I'm not going to take the time to read through every one of these, but nations rising up against nations, World War I and World War II, the regathering of Israel as a nation, the control of Israel of historical Jerusalem, potentially Ezekiel 38, Gog and Magog, one world government, ten kingdoms, reign of the Antichrist, period of false peace, signing of the covenant. When we see those things taking place, and I did read through all of it. What should we be doing as believers? Shouldn't we be looking up? Stephanie showed me a video yesterday and I actually got emotional about it and it kind of shocked me. I think with Jonathan going to Israel, this group going to Israel, having been in Israel, I was listening to this rabbi share, he's not a believer, but they put security up for all 
who are going up on the Temple Mount, Christians, Jews, as well as Muslims, and the Muslims boycotted it, and so for one day, evidently, no Muslims were up on the Temple Mount, which means that the rabbis were able to get up there, and they weren't supposed to pray, but they did. And it was the first time in over 2,000 years that that has happened. Folks, look up. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I, I look at these events in today, and I look at what's going on with Russia and all this stuff, and you think, dear Lord, I want to live with you fully today. I want to be prepared to meet you face to face. I don't want to be ashamed at your coming. I want to look forward to it with everything that I've got. Folks, that's how we ought to be viewing this. We ought to be ready. We ought to be alert. One last kind of point, because I know this has been taught many, many times, and it's fascinating. Does the gospel have to be proclaimed to the entire earth before the Lord can come back? <laughs> Some of you are like, where are you going with this? Relax, relax. We won't break fellowship. You can be wrong. It's okay. Matthew 24, 14. This particular passage in the Olivet Discourse, this particular section of this message that the Lord is giving to the disciples is about the tribulation. It is not about the age we're in right now. And Matthew 24, 14 says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. He is not speaking of the beginning of the tribulation. He is speaking of the end of the tribulation and he's talking to the disciples who are Jewish and he is sharing with them about the events of the tribulation and this statement about the gospel of the kingdom is specific to the tribulation. During the tribulation, the gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed to the entire earth. He's not talking about now. He's talking about the tribulation. Well, in Mark chapter 13, verse 10, there's another similar statement. And he's talking about the apostolic age, which has passed. In other words, he's looking at these disciples, at these apostles, and he begins to tell them what's going to happen in terms of the destruction of Jerusalem. And then he begins to tell them what they are going to go through. And he makes this statement to them because of what they're about to go through and what they're going to participate with God in seeing accomplished. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. The question is, did that happen? Well, Acts chapter two, verse five states this. Remember, this is Pentecost. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. <laughs> Catch that. There were Jews at Pentecost in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven. What did they hear? They heard Peter proclaim the gospel. Many of them were saved and added to their numbers, and God began to do a work. God began to send these men back to where they lived in order to proclaim the gospel, in order to begin to create the foundation so that when Paul went on his journeys, his mission journeys, that there was already the seed of the gospel being planted within where he was going. Amazing. 
Paul himself says this in Romans 10, 18, and he's, he's talking about the preaching of the gospel. He says, I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. And he's talking not only about the Jews here, he's talking about Gentiles, and he says this, their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Wow. What's Paul saying? Saying the gospel has been proclaimed to the entire known earth. Everybody is going to have an opportunity to hear this. Now, what's Mark talking about? The Olive Discourse, he's talking about the time of the apostles. Again, quoting Warren Wiersbe. He says, while I do not think that taking the gospel to all nations, Mark 13, 10, is a condition for our Lord's return. Do you catch that? It's not necessarily a condition for our Lord's return. It certainly is Christ's commission to his people. Think about that. What does Matthew 28 tell us? What are we supposed to do? Aren't we supposed to proclaim the gospel? Not only in our own Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, but even to where? The uttermost. It's an all-encompassing moment, folks. Not everybody's called to go to the uttermost. Everybody is called right here, right now, today, to yield to the Lord Jesus Christ so that through us, as the Lord leads us and raises up the opportunities, that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ would be proclaimed to not only our family members, but our neighbors and the people right around us. And if God chooses us, chooses to send us to Judea, so be it. We're willing to do that. If he chooses to send us to our Samaria, so be it. We're willing to do that. If he chooses to send us to the uttermost, so so be it. We are ready to do that. Why? Because the commission of God is to do, take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the question is, are we doing that? That's the issue. We, we talk about this all the time. Making disciples. Well, what does making disciples mean? It means sharing with somebody the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and helping them come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what? You don't stop there. You begin to teach them all that Jesus commanded us. So making a disciple is not only evangelistic, but it is also equipping. And the two must be seen to go together. Because if we're equipping people to sit and soak and go to another class in order to get more head knowledge, and it never transcends into telling somebody about the Lord Jesus Christ or helping somebody else to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ, then our equipping is an absolute failure. That's the truth. In the midst of growing in Christ, I would suggest that there is absolutely no way that you can be growing in Christ being transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ and not have a heart for the lost. There's no way. So if there's no heart for the lost, folks, we better take a real double check about where we are in our walk with the Lord. Amen? Absolutely. Let's go. We got a whole world around us that is decaying. It is rotten to the core. I mean, I'm not going through that trash can, but you know it. The question is, how are we walking with the Lord in such a way as to say, Lord, here we are, we're vessels through which your life is being revealed. How are we helping one another grow and encouraging one another to grow in Christ? How are we doing that? How are we coming alongside and say, come on, 
Let me pray with you. Let's get in the word together. Let's pray about what God has for us. And let's go. Because that's what God does. We don't have to be pressured in it in the sense that somehow if we don't fulfill what somebody else is doing, that we're wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But we surely need to be yielded to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you something. If there's one thing true about Americans, and I'm saying this about myself as much as anybody else, we are very comfortable. And we got to get off it. And we need to start walking with the Lord. Because, friend, he's coming back soon. I can guarantee you that. And the question is, how are we living day by day? saying yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at this and we look at these different things, I'm going to give you this real quick. Seven keys indicating the time of a pre-trib rapture. First of all, Daniel's 70th week. Daniel's 70th week is for Israel, not the church. When you read Daniel chapter 9, 24, it's very clear. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city Jerusalem. Now, friends, we understand that there's a twofold work here. It's for Israel to come back to the Lord Jesus Christ and recognize that he is their Messiah and that will take place by the end of the tribulation. It is also for the putting down of sin and rebellion on this earth. The church, in the midst of that, I do not believe is found. Jeremiah 37 says, alas, for that day is great. Speaking of the seven-year period of time, the, the great tribulation, there is none like it. And it's the time of Jacob's distress. But he, meaning Jacob or Israel, will be saved from it. What a beautiful picture that is of God's faithfulness and sovereignty in the midst of his promise to Israel that he will not forsake his promises to Israel. Secondly, Revelation 3.10, we're promised to be kept from the hour of testing. Revelation 3.10 says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. This is a future tense moment. This is not a present moment in terms of this particular church. This is something that is yet to come. And as a result, let the Spirit hear what we ought to be hearing what the Spirit says to the church. It is a promise to all believers of all ages, of all time. I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The word kept means to guard, to watch over. And what's interesting is that word from does not mean during, it does not mean in the midst of, it is the Greek preposition ek which means out of. Out of. I will keep you out of this hour of testing that is about to come on the whole earth. MacArthur puts it this way. He says, its purpose is to test those who dwell on the earth, a phrase used as a technical term in the book of Revelation for unbelievers. The hour of testing is Daniel's 70th week. The Lord promises to keep his church out of the future time of testing that will come on unbelievers. Beautiful promise, beautiful truth. What hope we have in the midst of this. Third, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, which I read to you, and chapter 5, verse 9, we are not destined for wrath, or as Paul states in verse 10 of chapter 1, the wrath to come. 
And again, quoting a commentary on this, the wrath spoken of here is the tribulation. That's what Paul's context is. That's what he's telling them in this letter to the Thessalonian believers. He says, believers will not go through the tribulation because God did not appoint us to wrath. The salvation is then deliverance from the tribulation by the rapture. One of the benefits of the work of Christ on the cross is that believers who are alive when Christ returns will be raptured before the wrath falls on mankind. If we're here today and we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that we have been given a promise that the future judgment that is going to come on this earth is not something that we have been destined for, marked for. We will be kept from that hour of testing. We will be brought out out of the world during that particular period of time because it is not a time that is for the church. Now that ought to get our attention, folks, because there's a whole lot of people around us that that time is for. And the question is, how are we warning them of the wrath to come? How are we being used of the Lord to let them know that they can have hope? That they can not only be saved eternally, but they can be rescued from this coming time of judgment upon this earth. Fourth, Revelation chapter 5. And I say this because the scroll with the seven seals that is pictured here is a picture of God's divine judgment upon the earth. It is a scroll that is completely marked up from the front as well as the back, meaning it's full. There are seven seals that only the lamb himself is able to open. The entire thing is the judgment of God upon this earth, the wrath of God upon this earth. Wrath is not simply God's anger towards sin as a state of mind, but rather it's the wrath of God, and it's shown in all kinds of passages that is specific judgment from God during the tribulation on this earth. I don't see how you can break up when the wrath begins or when it starts or when it doesn't. In other words, the first six seals are just as much the wrath of God as the last seal is the wrath of God containing the trumpets as well as the vials. All of it is the wrath of God. Granted, it increases in intensity throughout the seven-year period of time. No question about it. The seven bowls being poured out are indescribable, and they are the completion of the wrath of God. But all of it is the wrath. And I would turn in that sense to Revelation chapter 6, verse 17, where it is clear that the first six seals have taken place, and the people on this earth during that time make the statement, The great day of their wrath has come, indicating that wrath is already being poured out in the first six seals, and it will intensify in the seventh because the trumpets will begin to be opened and the bowls poured out. I do not see how you can split up the scroll into different sections when it comes to wrath. All of it is the judgment of God or the wrath of God in my mind. And we are told that we are not destined for that. We're told to comfort one another with these words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Why? Because the trumpet of God will sound. 
You know, it's an amazing moment because it is for believers in our current state, the last moment where we will hear the Lord prior to being transformed. <laughs> Think about that. It's like the clarion call of God saying to the people of God, it's over. It's finished. Come with me. No more suffering, no more sorrow, no more dealing with sin. No more dealing with a sinful, fallen world. It's over. Come with me. What a beautiful truth. What a comfort. The dead in Christ will rise first. We will not precede them. What does he mean? Is there soul sleep? Absolutely not. He's talking about the bodies of those who have already died in Christ. All believers from all ages, who in, or the church age, who have died, and their bodies are asleep. What's going to happen? Wayne Barber's body is going to be immediately resurrected and meet with him in the air, and he's going to have an incorruptible body. Praise God for that. And you and I are not going to precede that. We're going to meet them together in the air. Wow, what an amazing truth, folks. Can you imagine? Come on. Can you imagine that moment where we hear that trumpet sound? And whether it's an actual trumpet, I believe it'll be something like that. One of the funniest things Stephanie ever did. We were moving, and it was like 3 o'clock in the morning, and she decided to go back to the house to clean it up. Kids and I were in the hotel. She's driving down the road. She's trying to keep herself awake. She had all the windows open. She had the radio blasting, and a show came on, and they started the show with the shofar horn. And she said she started looking out the window like, why am I still here? <laughs> it made me laugh. It was so funny. Oh, Lord, classic. Never gets boring in my house. <laughs> we who remain will be caught up in the clouds. We will not precede them, and we are promised, and think about this, to always be with the Lord. From that moment on, we will never leave his side. We will be with him. Glorified bodies, putting on the incorruptible. This corruptible will be done away with. Anybody got aches and pains? Anybody who got health issues, guess what? Corruptible's put off, incorruptible on. I don't know what age we're going to be, but it ain't going to be, I think, 110. You understand what I'm saying? I think we're going to have glorified bodies. We're going to be able to recognize one another. There's a whole series of messages that could be done on that. It's amazing, folks. Two more, two more. Hang with me. Six, the presence of the 24 elders. Now, I know there's a discrepancy in this, and I know this can be a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, if you believe that the 24 elders represent the church, well, then I guess you do have to translate it that way. And what if you don't believe that the 24 elders represent the church? Well, you can be wrong. <laughs> it's okay. I believe the 24 elders represent the church. Now, I understand that. And again, we'll agree to disagree. It's okay. We're not going to break fellowship over it. But I believe these 24 elders depicted in Revelation 4 and 5 represent the church, which means that prior to the opening of the first seal, the judgment of God, the tribulation, the great tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, that the church is already represented as being in heaven. Why? Well, they're clothed in white. What are the promises given to the churches if they are faithful and continue and remain and be believers who are walking with the Lord? They will be clothed in white. What about the crowns? 
They are the rewards for the saints in many different ways. They are symbolic of that which is ours, that when we're faithful, God desires to reward us. And in the midst of that, the elders have their crowns. The elders are clothed in white, and I believe they are representative of the church, which means the church is already in heaven prior to the seal, first seal, being opened. Last and not least, some people kind of look at this and they're not sure exactly where to go with this. And they put it down because they say it's an argument of silence and that doesn't really fit and all this kind of stuff. Look, the fact of the matter is there is an outline for the book of Revelation and it's given to us in Revelation chapter 1 verse 19. The Lord tells John, write the things which you have seen. That's chapter 1. The things which are, which is chapters 2 through 3 concerning the church, because they are the present moment circumstances at that point. And then, after these things, involves the future events of the tribulation, which does not, in my mind, involve the church, because the church is not even... (laughs) in effect suggested from chapter 6 when that first seal is opened all the way through chapter 19. No mention of the church. All about the church, the things which you have seen, which is the Lord's appearance to John at the island of Patmos, the things which are chapters 2 and 3, which are all about the church. And all of a sudden, chapters 4 and 5, you have the heavenly scene, the throne scene, and you have the elders who are representative of the church. But from chapter 6 on, all the way through 19, no church. I don't know how you get around that. I don't know how you ignore that. Seven reasons why I believe in a pre-tribulation, tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, seven-year period of time, specific for Israel and for the putting down of rebellion and sin on this earth, the judgment of God, the wrath of God poured out to bring an end to things. The question is, how are we living? Can I read you something real fast? I know what time it is. Your leaving here is imminent. (laughs) Come on, can we joke around about some of this stuff? Give me a break. Spiros, in speaking of 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about being changed in the twinkling of an eye, and there's many passages. I touched, this is a 30,000-foot view, folks. He says, for the believer, whether Paul in his day or me in mine, The coming of the Lord and the resurrection has always been the greatest incentive to labor and suffer for the Lord. Think about that. How often in urging people to repent, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to change their minds about their need of Christ, we tell them to do so in view of the fact that if they don't, they shall one day meet Christ as their judge. Wow. Is it an incentive for us right now today to serve the Lord wholeheartedly, fully? How are we attached to the things of this world? How have we become so comfortable that the material stuff is all we think about, all we work for? Or are we serving the Lord wholeheartedly, recognizing that literally at any moment, folks, the Lord could return, we could hear that trumpet call, And the question is, are we looking for him? Are we looking towards his return? And are we ready for it? And are we serving him day by day? And what about the people that don't know the Lord? 
Are we willing to take that step as the Lord leads and empowers us and guides us and gives us grace to tell a friend, to tell a family member, to tell a neighbor, to tell a waitress or a waiter or whoever, can I tell you about my Lord? Because I want you to know him as Lord and Savior and not have to look upon him in that terrible, horrible moment of the great white throne judgment where you will be judged. That's the question, folks. How are we doing that then? How are we doing with that? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. 